0: Please remain standing as you are able for the reading of today's Old Testament lesson from the book of Job, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. There once was a man in the land of Oz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold feasts in one another's houses in turn, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the feast days had run their course, Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said... It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This is what Job always did. One day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There was no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased the land. But stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well. All that he has is in your power. Only do not stretch out your hand against him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God.
1: Thank you, Brad, for reading our lesson this morning. I, I think uh, after the anthem, James, I think we could just about have the benediction and go home after that, don't you? Amen. Not so fast. Um, we're so grateful to you for sharing not just music, but sharing your faith with us this morning to our Sunshine Choir. Um, isn't it wonderful to wake up to sunshine on a Sunday morning? I, I think it's, it's been a little while since that's happening, and I love rainy days and Sundays of all kinds, but it's really nice to wake up and see just a touch of spring in the air today. Uh, I promised you last week after we completed uh, that leisurely stroll through Ecclesiastes that we would be going from glory to glory, and we are today going to the third and final word, the collection of wisdom sayings that are part of the Hebrew canon. And we turn today during this first Sunday of Lent, during this 40-day pilgrimage that we began on Wednesday night with the imposition of ashes, we turned to this study of Job. As a pastor, uh, you can imagine I'm asked a lot of questions from time to time, deep, unanswerable, probing, mind-boggling questions that are typically born out of some hardship or some burden or pain that has come unexpectedly, unwelcomed, and often undeservedly. I've noticed that suffering of any kind often comes with a question mark that winds up threatening our psyche, our perspective, and, and certainly preoccupying our attention. The book of Job, I think, articulates the most basic question in the human experience, and that's the question, why? Why the sickness? Why the shooting? Why the virus, coronavirus? Why the tragedy? Why the suicide? Why the accident? Why the pain? The question that keeps me up at night not the how questions, science can help us with that, but the most troubling questions that we're faced with are the existential questions, questions of meaning and of purpose. And so we're intentionally calling this series on Job, Why Me?, because most of the time our questions are intensely personal. And yet, in spite of the fact that they're personal, they're also universal. We all ask these questions. In fact, every one of us in the house today has either just come through a crisis, you're now in a crisis, or you're about to face a crisis. You can't avoid it, and you don't have to go looking for it. As you know, it will come to you. And when it comes, it begs the question, why me? If God is good, if God is merciful, if God is gracious, just, loving, then why is this happening to me?" I think it's ironic that the name of the lead character in this story is itself, in the Hebrew language, a question. In the Hebrew language, the word Job, the name Job, literally means, where is the divine father? That's what it means. In fact, it can also be translated persecuted one, And so you see from the get-go, from the prologue that Brad read for us, you see that the name itself telegraphs the premise, the thesis of this story. I think that the inclusion of Job in the Hebrew canon actually gives us permission to raise the question. In fact, his story gives an alternative response to the well-intentioned guardians of our faith who would say to us, ours is not to question. And the book of Job not only allows the question, it actually encourages it. Now, I've discovered in my own walk with God that faith is not always quiet acquiescence. Faith is a struggle. It was for Jacob. You remember the story of Jacob and the wrestling match at the river Jappock, where one night, as he the next day was anticipating meeting his brother, he had that dream, and all night long he fought against God. It's a struggle. It's a wrestling match. Hemingway, in his classic book, Farewell to Arms, said, The world breaks everyone, and afterward, some are strong in the broken places. And so it's not really what we achieve in life that makes us strong. It's what you overcome in life. And I believe that Job is God's permission to all of us to express grief rather than to repress grief, to actually ask the question in a lamentation to God, why me? In preparation for this time, I was reading a book by Stephen Mitchell. This is a classic book. Uh, He's an anthologist, a poet, and a linguistic expert who has written not only a commentary on Job but also a paraphrase of Job. In his book, Stephen Mitchell says that this book is the classic Jewish theme of the victim. The victim theme is played out in much of the history of Israel. Think about it. They were slaves in Egypt, victim. They were exiles in Babylon, victim. They were under Roman occupation in Palestine, victim. They witnessed in 70 A.D. the destruction of Jerusalem. And what about the Holocaust? Israel embodies the suffering servant. And by the way, it's no coincidence, is it, that in the fullness of time, in the incarnation of God in Christ, Jesus also fits the bill of suffering servant the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And isn't it interesting to note, especially during Lent, that even Jesus on Good Friday, in his dying moment, asks Job's question, my God, my God, why me? And I have a couple of presuppositions that I want to mention as as we begin this series that I think are challenged by the text itself. First of all, many of you like me, we've always thought of Job as a man of patience, yes? In fact, James, the little epistle, chapter 5 in your New Testament speaks of this man and his patience. I used to hear it from my parents and grandparents, oh, he has the patience of Job. She has the patience of Job. But when you read this book, you'll notice that Job's patience runs out after the first two chapters. He is not overly subservient to God, on the contrary. At one point, he wants to slap a lawsuit on God. At one point, he wants to put God in a courtroom on the stand. Can you imagine it, that God putting his hand on the Torah, will you swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you, you? I do. The truth of the matter is Job is not a picture of patience. but he is a picture of endurance, perseverance. Secondly, the second presupposition I have is that I've always thought that the key question, maybe the only question in Job is, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do the righteous suffer? And that is a key question, but it's not the first question in Job chapter 1. The initial question is this, Why are the righteous righteous? Why are good people good? Why do pious people practice discipleship? I wish we could go around the room this morning and ask that question of you. Why do you worship God? Why do we revere God? That's the first question. And what's interesting to me is in this book, the source of that question is none other than Satan. It all starts in verse 6, chapter 1, with a celestial committee meeting. That in itself is a little disappointing to me. My, my vision of heaven is a place where there will be no committees. There'll be no more finance meetings, no more trustees meetings, no, me, no more SPR meetings. Some of you, like me, feel like a committee is a group of the unwilling appointed by the unfit to do the unnecessary. And so this is not really good news. There's a council meeting in heaven. Michael, Gabriel, all the angels, archangels are there, and Satan is there. The Satan. There's always an article in front of it. I'll explain it in a moment. And then God engages the Satan. He asks him a question, where have you come from? And the Satan replies, from going to and from on the earth, from walking up and down. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? There's nobody on earth like him, integrity, a man who is blameless, upright, a man who fears God and always turns from evil. And what you need to understand is that the word Satan in the Hebrew is not a name, it's not a personal name, it's a title. It's a function. It's a role. The word literally means accuser. And so the Satan in this text is the prosecuting attorney. And that confirms another presupposition that I have about lawyers. But that's another story. The Satan's role in this meeting is to examine human behavior and to report disloyalty to the court. It may interest you to know that culturally, culturally, in the Near East at that time, every king had a Satan whose job was to wander around the kingdom and vet those who said they supported the king, but in their actions did not. And so this adversary, this attorney, raises the question concerning this righteous man. And here's the question. Lord, he asked, do you think that Job fears you for nothing? Do you think for one moment that Job worships you for no reason? Look at what you've done for him. Look at all the blessings. Look at the perks. Big family, big ranch, big staff. He's got it made. In fact, you've put a fence around him. You've put a hedgerow to protect him. Do you think that this man serves you because he loves you? Now, what's the Satan doing? He's doing what he always does. He's questioning the motive of Job's goodness. He's insinuating that Job serves God because it pays. The innuendo is that if you took away the blessings, the perks, the benefits of being pious, if you take his flocks, he will curse you to your face. And God says, you're on. All that he has, says the Lord, is now in your power, only do not stretch out your hand against him. In other words, don't kill him, don't harm him. It's important to keep in mind at this point that neither Job nor his family or friends had any clue as to what was happening behind the scenes, any more than we understand the mystery behind our own calamity. I noticed in John Wesley's sermon on this text, he cautions his listeners in the congregation, do not take this extremely literally. It is a parabolical representation that God is intimately involved in all the affairs of humankind. And oh, the pain. Talk about hitting the fan. It's one disaster after another. Job loses everything. Oxen, donkeys, camels carried off by the enemy. Servants are struck down by the sword in an act of violence. Lightning strikes the sheepfold, killing off the whole pen. And a tornado, a hurricane, a whirlwind takes, this is the worst, takes his kids And Job hits rock bottom. What you see in the story is he exhibits the customary signs of a man who is in deep grief. What does he do? He rends his garments, he tears his clothes, he throws dust in the air, he shaves his head, and he's reduced to a pool of tears. But what happens next is absolutely miraculous. He doesn't curse God. He doesn't even blame God. He doesn't opt out on his faith, verse 20 says, and Job fell on his face and worshiped the Lord. Whew. Naked, he says, I came from my mother's womb. Naked, I will return. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed is the name of of the Lord. And then chapter 1 ends with verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. Turns out that Satan was wrong. Job worships God for no apparent reason. Not for camels, not for sheep, not for oxen, not for a tax break, not, not for the fact that it pays, not that it's good for business or his resume. He doesn't worship God for self-respect, reputation, or status. There is no ulterior motive to this man's loyalty. In fact, I think you can make a case that the greatest confession of faith in the Scripture comes from his lips in chapter 13, though he slay me yet I will trust in him. Job loves God just as much on the ash heap as he does in his affluence. He's just as devout when the sheep pen is empty as when his bank account is full. He is no less faithful in his sorrow than he is in his success. I don't know about you, but it reminds me a little bit of the Apostle Paul who wrote to the church in Philippi, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can endure all things through Christ who strengthens me. By the way, do you know where Paul was when he wrote those words? (laughs) He was in a Roman prison cell on death row. He was worshiping God for no apparent reason, simply because God is worthy. I was telling Jimmy a minute ago that today is my dad's birthday, March the 1st. He would be 91 if he was still with us. He died 15 years ago, born in 1929 in Asheville, North Carolina. He was my mentor. He was my best friend. When daddy had a stroke at 63, age 63, he retired, and he had to relearn how to walk and talk. And we discovered that he was just as faithful in his wheelchair as he was in the pulpit. It's very unfortunate, I think, sometimes, the conditional commitments that I make to an unconditional God, and Job never does. Even when he's uncertain about the why of his struggle, He's certain about the who of his strength. Let me mention two things and I'm finished. Last weekend, our fifth graders were on retreat, 58 fifth graders at Horton Haven. Ten counselors were there. Ellen and Megan gave to them these prayer journals. Our fifth graders now have these prayer journals, and they were instructed to write their prayers in these books, and so many of them began to do that as a part of this Lenten journey. One of the fifth graders, and her dad gave me permission, she gave her dad permission for me to share this, she listed the names of her friends in her journal on retreat, and then she added a whole litany of people that she was praying for. I want you to hear her prayer. Dear God, be with all the people who are hurting, who are suffering, who are missing a family member, who are sick, lonely, cold, hungry, misunderstood, let down, mad, furious, grieving, lost, confused, sad. Did she miss anybody? I, I think she got us all pretty perceptive for an 11 year old. But what I find interesting is the child who wrote that has been through leukemia. She learned how to pray when she was sick, and she's still praying now that she's well because God has made her strong in the broken place. Last word. I can see them in my mind's eyes today. I remember a couple in our church in North Atlanta, Roswell, Georgia. We still get Christmas cards from them once a year and enjoy seeing their picture. Jacinda and Alan Kalazna is their name. Back in the 90s, they had been visiting our church for several months. They were about to join. They'd had a son, a little boy named Jared, and the joy of that child brought them back to faith, brought them back to church. And they wanted to do the baptism. We scheduled the baptism. And then a couple of weeks right before the baptism, he became deathly ill. I went to Scottish Wright Hospital, now Atlanta Healthcare, and the doctor said he could he was not gonna make it. And so I found I got some water in a in a cup, and we did the baptism in ICU. And that little fella died the same day. His parents were, as you can imagine, broken. And I was deeply afraid for them. Not just for their marriage, but for their faith. And I was afraid that this could be the end of their faith. And we helped them with counseling. We had a Stephen minister, and and they kept coming to worship. They didn't check out. And I remember months later, we were building a sanctuary, and on it was Pentecost Sunday. On Pentecost Sunday, we, we consecrated this beautiful sanctuary, and they said to me after the benediction, we need to talk to you, and they came by the office. We'd like to give the baptismal bowl, they said, for the new sanctuary, and it's still there. It's a beautiful bowl that sits front and center in the chancel of that church, so that every time a little one or an adult is baptized, when the pastor dips her hand into Jared's bowl, the congregation is reminded of a grieving couple who worshiped God for no apparent reason, other than he's worthy. Because when you know God on a personal level, you don't really have to have a reason. It's instinctive, it's intuitive, and besides, where else would you go? I think it's appropriate on this first Sunday, this morning, first Sunday of Lent, to come to a table where even when you're unsure as to the why of your struggle, you can be confident as to the who of your strength, because he makes us strong in the broken places. Amen.